1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 97. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. I saw your eyebrows raise when I said episode 97 there. (laughs) I don't know if it was memories of 1997 or just that we're getting closer to 100. We've had so many people getting in touch going, what are you going to do for your 100th episode then? I am working on something I'm really hoping is going to come off.
2: Yeah, it will be good. Yeah. Uh, if not, it's going to be a clip show. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm confident this is going to come off. I won't give too much away yet, but this is going to be a very, very... You probably couldn't get a bigger guest than this, to yeah, be fair. biggest so, guest ever. Yeah, there's a little tease for you. And uh, one thing we did notice, actually, is uh, you've been looking through some of our SoundCloud stats and all that kind of thing as well. We've actually
2: doubled our audience in, like, what, the last six months? I can't believe it, yeah. So we were getting a certain amount, and now we've doubled it on... It each of our platforms as well. So it's not just on SoundCloud, it's on YouTube and all the other stuff. So thanks so much for all you new listeners.
1: So if you are new to the Retro Hour podcast, because I do often see this, the way the show works is the first half an hour, Ravi and I, we talk about the retro gaming headlines, all the stuff that's been making the news. And then in the second half of the show that's when we welcome on a special guest every week. Because I see so many people on like YouTube and stuff, interview starts at 27 minutes in. So first half you get us, second half you get the guest. I should probably start on a timestamp in there. But it is worth hanging around for the first bit of the show though, because I mean, this kind of blows people's minds that there is so much retro gaming news. And in fact, you know, we started the show almost two years ago now. Back then, we were having to like really dig for news. But it's like everywhere now, isn't it?
2: Absolutely everywhere. And the guest that we've got coming on today was actually one of our previous news articles, which was uh, this Coffee Crisis game, if you remember that. Yeah. Well, these guys, Mega Cat Studios, they are producing new games for the NES, for the Sega Mega Drive. They're, they're producing new old-school games.
1: Which is just crazy. I mean, last week we were talking about like new Game Boy games that have been released. Obviously, companies like Thalamus from back in the 80s are back with new Commodore 64 games they're releasing. Yeah, so. there's a
2: big industry emerging. Well, mini-industry,
1: but it's good. <laughs> Growing every week, yeah. though. So this is going to be a really interesting chat. We've got the guys from Megacat Studios coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 25 minutes from now, if you're aware, you want know, to skip forward in YouTube. With That's fine. We don't mind. We know not everyone listens to every show. Now, of course, one thing that we've been doing a lot more of recently is getting out and about, meeting our listeners, bringing the guests that we have on the show to you live in person. And we've got one coming up. Now, this kind of blows my mind. That we're obviously well into November now, starting to feel like it as well, isn't it? Everyone's got the big winter coats on and scarves and everything. Bloody Christmas adverts <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I heard the Pogues' fairy tale of New York for the first oh, time no, today. Oh God. It started, but we're actually having a little pre-Christmas party. Now this is going to be coming up at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, and we're bringing. One of the most interesting people we know, our good friend, David Pleasants. Now, obviously, David, he used to be the managing director of Commodore in the UK, um, did stuff like, you know, the Batman pack. He was the guy behind the brains behind the Batman pack, launched the CD32 with Chris Evans, and he was actually the guy that did want to buy Commodore out and keep the Amiga going, Kind of got screwed a bit in the process, but he's got some really interesting stories and he's bringing a book out very soon as well. So you were chatting to him over a couple of beers at the Amiga 32 show in Germany.
2: Yeah, I kind of noticed as the date for the book release comes out, the stories get juicier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, each week we're getting new revelations from David. So I think this is going to be a very interesting event and uh, recommend it to all our listeners.
1: Absolutely. So if you want to come along, one thing we must stress is because there's going to be a bar open on the evening, uh, due to their licensing rules, this is strictly a pre-book only event. Now, you can't just buy tickets on the door on the day. You have to actually book this in advance. But we've got a link on our website, theretrohour.com the way it works is you just make a donation into the running of the museum
2: yeah totally it's all going to the museum everything
1: yeah so you know we're not not making any profit of this it's just to keep the museum running which is a really worthwhile cause so you can donate whatever you want I think the minimum is like 10 quid per person so if you want to find out more obviously that will get you into the museum there's so many great exhibitions and And the thing is it's
2: all day that ticket is as well so it starts at 10.30 in the morning and it ends at 10.30 at night so you know (laughs) even if you just came into the day you weren't interested in hanging in the bar or anything at night just come with your family and come along and have a look, or you could just come for the night's events. It all depends.
1: Yeah, I think David's chat's probably going to be in the afternoon at some point. We'll, we'll yeah. confirm the exact time uh, on our Facebook and on the show as well in the next couple of weeks, but we'd love to see you there. The date is Saturday, November 25th, so exactly one month before Christmas, next weekend at <laughs> the time of recording this show. And uh, if you want to come down, all you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com, or check out this week's show notes. I'll put a link in there with all the ticket and booking information, and they've got like a forum thread, so you can see your name appears in there, and they'll have your name on the door when you turn up, so... Hopefully we will see you there. Excellent. Now, of course, we couldn't do the Retro Hour podcast every week. We wouldn't have reached almost 100 episodes without the people who help us keep the show going week in, week out. And they are the people who find it in their dear hearts to make a donation into the running of the Retro Hour and also find their place in the Hall of Fame. This week, we want to say a massive thank you to Christian Hesketh. Coleman Barman. Tom Henderson. It is Mehmet. Who all made donations into the running of the show. If you'd like to do the same, obviously every penny that we get goes back into the running of the podcast. Allows us to keep doing this throughout 2018. Let's just keep doing these live events as well, so it's really appreciated. And you can donate either via PayPal, uh, Bitcoin,
2: and Ethereum now as well. Oh yes, we've got an Ethereum wallet. And Ethereum, you can also donate in Litecoin as well. So we actually have... Two more cryptocurrencies, and that will be on the main site.
1: Now, before we get into uh, this week's special guest, which will be the guys from Megacat Studios, you know, we're talking about how big Retro's suddenly become. What about this? Amazon have actually launched a Retro storefront.
2: Yeah, thanks to one of our listeners, Andy Baxter. He's kind of informed us about this. And, oh, my God, this is amazing. Do you want to go on it, Dan? You haven't been on it yet.
1: Okay, I've opened it now. So this is... um, All retro, all the time, the retro zone of Amazon.
2: Yeah, and doesn't this look to you like a 90s Yahoo page (laughs) or something, you know, full of old-school good stuff, even the fonts are kind of old-school. But the thing is, they've categorised it into retro clothing, they've got retro toys, books, but they've also got games. Now, the interesting part about the games is some of the prices that they've put on these because if you go on to... um, the classic game section, yeah, and you look at some of the kind of uh, stuff like Mega Man X. It's kind of $343 here. Wow. And <laughs> I think they've got a lot of really high-priced games, and I think they're starting with the rare ones. But it's going to be interesting to see which like, systems they think are actually worth putting up here and which games they think are worth putting on Amazon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking here. The original NES, uh, you can buy for $248. <laughs> so yeah. it is on the pricey end of the market. But then again, you've got other stuff on there, like uh, the Sega Dreamcast, you know, the green uh, VMU. Get that for $11. You've got the um, the Retro Mouse for the SNES. That's about 20 So the prices kind of vary a bit. If you want to get Star Fox for, for the SNES, $489.99. Oh, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> but I don't know if these are like, you know, sealed old copies maybe, but...
2: That's it. Well, you know, Amazon, they have, you know, you could put the copy on, but people can also sell their older copies and stuff. So I think this will be like the initial listing and then people will go, oh, there's 10 used or,
1: you know. It is a testament um, to how popular it is, uh, the fact that they've now actually dedicated, you know, because, you know, on Amazon, you get the categories, the drop down list. There is actually RetroZone in there. And, you know, it, the fact that it's got a headline position on like the world's biggest shopping website.
2: Well, that's it. Amazon want to be part of every single transaction that goes on in the world, and Retro. There's a lot of transactions going on at the moment, so they want to get a piece of the pie.
1: And what I love as well is a lot of these are offered on Amazon Prime. So you yeah, know. A one day instant delivery. <laughs> if you need an Atari Jaguar tomorrow morning, this would be the place to go. <laughs> so if you want to check that out, it's just at the Retro Zone on Amazon. They've timed that well with Christmas coming up as oh, well. Definitely, haven't they? they know what they're doing. Now, speaking of blasts from the past, have you got any cassette tapes left?
2: Left? No, I haven't. Uh, But I was very late in the game with cassette tapes. I was still using them because I used to be into rave, old school rave, and you used to get these tape packs because they never could produce any CDs or afford to do that. So you get these like tape packs that were usually taken off that tape and you'd have all these live performances in it with this awful plastic moulded cover. With about six tapes in it. Six yeah. tapes, yeah. You got them, didn't you, Dan? <laughs> yeah. I used
1: to get like yeah, the Dream Team ones. And signed and, Wider uh,
2: and all that. Yeah. You know, all these
1: old garage ones I used to get, yeah. But you'd walk into like record shops, wouldn't you, and you'd see them on the top shelf. Yeah, yeah. About 14, 15 quid each. But did you know that cassette tapes are apparently cool again?
2: Yes, I've, I've, I've been seeing a lot of stuff because I, I follow Tecmo and he does quite a lot of stuff about it. But I've noticed there's been like in charity shops have been going around looking at like cassette holders they've suddenly gone up a bit in price and i'm like oh they must be realizing that cassettes are coming back people are buying them again
1: then yeah well you know bands like metallica they actually still release
2: albums on cassette yeah it's it's, it's interesting because with cassette as well a lot of the modern cassettes they're, they're not going to the high quality standard that they did with the older ones which was steel cassettes
1: metal and stuff i remember yeah that. yeah
2: they're ferrite, and they're mm. still using that at the moment so Is there any news on if they're going to be better? Well, apparently,
1: um, they actually, one of the the world's biggest company, the one that was kind of left making all the magnetic tape that they were putting in cassette tapes, actually stopped making them in 2014.
2: Ah, okay. But
1: as it turns out, they're kind of running out of tape now.
2: Yeah, yeah, because it's all just the stuff left. Yeah, far right.
1: But now, there's a company called National Audio Co. who've actually started, um, hopefully, they're going to start a new production run of magnetic tape early in 2018. because oh. the demand is there again now. Nice. And they reckon this is going to make four miles of tape a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you get into the stage where, you know, you're you taping over your old cassettes like 400 times since the 90s, then very soon, apparently, there might be a chance to, you know, you'll be seeing a lot of new cassette tapes on the market, blank tapes.
2: Oh, you 8-bitters will love that. I was going
1: to say, even for stuff like the Spectrum and C64, that's good news for guys who want to keep it real and still use, like, cassette tapes to load games off. Because I was reading, like, a list the other day and it was one of these things, you know, you always see like them on the, the Metro and stuff like that. Like, nine things we don't miss about old games. One of them was waiting 20 minutes for a game to load enough cassette tape. Last week, I bought the new Call of Duty game. I'm not prou- <laughs> you loaded it on cassette.
2: <laughs> I, I'm, not, no, I, I'm
1: not proud I did. Every year I'm like, I'm not going to buy COD anymore now. It's rinsed out. You know, my brother, he texts me. I've got it. Why don't you buy it? Oh, get it, then we'll play it. Guess how long it took me to download the updates and install it. Oh, a good, good hour or two hours, huh? 24 hours, pretty much. Oh yeah. Jesus. I had to put the game in, download it. Um, that was probably around 40 gigabytes I had to download. Then there was about a 20 gigabyte upload. And then the patches. Then all the patches, yeah. yeah so I put it on Friday night, didn't get to play till Saturday night. And my brother said to me, Bring back cartridges, what happened? So yeah. I was like, yeah, I wish you only had to wait 20 minutes to install a game these days, but there you go, cassette tapes are back. COD on cassette tape would be, yeah. I wonder how long that would take to load. <laughs> but there you go, you, know, if you what I want them to do next, though, Until is. the
2: next COD game came
1: out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're making this again. What would be good is restart production of floppy disks.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. Now, that, that I'd be interested in.
1: Because they stopped, didn't they? Was it about two, 2009, I think, they stopped making those?
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and I've noticed that floppy disk blank packs have started getting really expensive on eBay and stuff.
1: Well, they used to do them in Staples, and I think I bought the last four packs they had in Staples here. They've been on the shelf for about four years. I went and thought, i would just have them. They were about $6.99, a pack of 10.
2: Saying that, I went into Tesco's or Asda the other day, set of tapes. Oh, Honestly, really? See, they were selling blank tapes, yeah.
1: My local Asda's got BHS tapes in as well still. So oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> See, magnetic media, you know, it's like anything, it's, you know, vinyl's coming back now. It's got to be the next thing, although... So, you know, cassette tapes sound sounded crap, didn't they? I don't miss them in the slightest, of a am honest. Uh, you know, obviously, the people that will be using cassette tapes, I imagine, are probably the more hipster end of the market. You found something else that may interest our uh, maybe listeners that have got big beards and uh,
2: thick rim glasses? Well, we cover these sometimes, and we're talking about the retro market and how the retro market is getting expensive and how there's a lot of money in it at the moment. And a new thing that we've been covering has been these hipster retro consoles. And this is the Love Holton. Carry for forty two, which is an, Love Holton, yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is an arcade stick um with a built-in twelve-inch screen, and it's um kind of four by three. You know, it's got nano flash in there and a and a twelve-volt DC supply. It looks quite nice. You know, it will have built-in a uh, emulator like the NES Mini and that kind of style, but um, it's you know. Nice pit of wood. It looks like an old-school suitcase. But, Reminds
1: uh, me of, like, you know, an old record play that your granddad had.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like one of those. How much would you think this would be, Dan? Oh, something like that. A few hundred quid? Yeah. I bet it's thousands, isn't it? It's like
1: $2,600. Yeah. I'm not surprised. They normally are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. But again, these are, you know, I, I do wonder who is buying these things, but obviously there is a market for people that just appreciate something that's just
2: quality made, I guess. That's it, with solid American walnut. That's... Apparently, what uh, demands the high price tag. Well, what's in here then? Is it just like a, is it a It's just board? a fighting stick with okay. a, a screen and a kind of a bit of flash in there. Okay. Seriously? <laughs> That's That's it, right.
1: really. it looks pretty cool, but if you paid that much for it, you wouldn't want to take it around your mate's house. And yeah, you... imagine breaking that, pulling the stick off that. <laughs> Spilling a pint on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you lose at Mortal Kombat. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> <That's it. laughs> Now, if we're talking about memories of the old days, there is a really interesting project at the moment. Because, you know, we, we often reminisce about our days back at school, you know, using stuff like the BBC Micro and Acorn Archimedes. And we're going to invite a couple of early guests on the show this week before we get to the, uh, the main guest, which is coming up in the next few minutes. And uh, these guys are doing a project called The Code Show. Now, the idea is they're actually going around schools at the moment, and there's a lot of these getting signed up, and they're teaching kids about the history of computing. Cos... A lot of kids, I mean, you know, if you're born now, you might not realise kind of where the industry came from and you wonder how kids react to like looking at stuff like the the Commodore 64 and the Specky and that kind of thing. So we're going to invite them to the show now, Mark and Gary from The Code Show. Welcome to the Retro Hour. Good evening. Hi there. Hi. Hello there. Now let's just start by explaining a little bit about what The Code Show is and where this idea came from.
3: Um, Well, I'll start there. Basically, I'm a primary school teacher. I teach computing in primary school. And with the advent of the new curriculum, um, there was a lot of panic amongst the educators, um, you know, how are we actually going to teach kids coding? Um, where is this skill actually coming from? And um, I came of it from a mindset of a lot of the teachers that were having to teach this subject weren't actually born during the 1980s computing boom. That so started me thinking, and I started collecting um, computers and holding all the auction sites. Uh, and then whilst I was teaching computing, I would bring in various bits of hardware, like Sinclair like Television, Sinclair like Calculator, uh, magnavox consoles and, and just bits of that you know just introducing the history into, into into my teaching uh and the kids were like what is this how does this work so that got me thinking it was a conversation with my, my deputy head teacher and the head teacher at school that actually said you know you could actually turn this into a show and, and take it to children you know in schools you know and actually explain the history behind the home computing boom.
2: I, I remember with my generation, we kind of started off having uh, acorns and we had BBCs and stuff, and then suddenly, kind of education changed to IT, and we were suddenly learning about really basic things and yeah, kind yeah. of no more programming, yeah. none of that. Word processing and Excel and everything all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, Alex, I, 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 I was lucky enough to leave school in 1984 just as the BBCs were, were coming into education. Um, a lot of good things were happening on the on the BBC, you know, with the Turtle and Econet, in it, et cetera. And then the ICT curriculum came in, uh, in, in, the 90s and it get, you know, it gets a lot of unfair press. Um, it was actually, a, actually a good curriculum in terms of teaching, um, the basics, et cetera. But we seem to forget. Think- forget or lose this concept that we're we're very good at at doing, which was actually coding and and creating programmes.
1: Well, I remember doing that. I mean, you know, if you're talking like my early days at school, we had like four BBC micros at school and then the big cub monitors and the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppies (laughs) and then we got into the Acorn Archimedes. I mean, what what about you, Mark? What are kind of your memories of uh, computing back Um, in those days? the,
4: The BBC, I mean, I started comprehensive school in 1988. So it was... We had like computer clubs, something that we probably don't see very much of these days. Um, and I started noticing kids messing about uh, with bits of code, doing things on the screen. And I, I, I sort of took an interest in that, and then I noticed what they were doing. They were working off a book and started changing code around. And then by the, by the later years, perhaps possibly 92, 93, the last two years, they the, the replaced them completely with, I think, there was the ACORN... A3010s, I think they were. Yeah. So they were good machines. They were very good machines, but you knew with the, the arm and the RISC uh, operating system, there was something very different about them. Mm. It wasn't like the Atari ST that I had at home. It was something else. Um, and I had a friend who, her dad was a, a headmaster of a school in Gateshead, so they used to get BBC's home and um, Acorn A3000s and stuff. And when I was playing on her computer, it was—you knew it was something different. You know, if you played Lotus 2 on the, the Acorn A3000, it was a totally different experience. Probably better than an Amiga, to be honest. But it was just because it was—and and, and I know you're an Amiga fan. I'm from the estate, Dan. You know, but, <laughs> but I'll was, dare you. We, 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 we can be friends. It's all right. <laughs> I'm just joking. But to be honest, there was something special about those Acorn Archimedes, and I probably like one myself because there's something very, very quirky about those machines, and it was. If it had went mainstream, like the S10 Amiga, um, it could have produced some wonderful games, probably touching on 3D stuff, you
2: know? Well, the stuff that people were learning on those machines was incredible as well. I remember mm-hmm. learning for the first time about vector graphics using Coral yeah, Draw yeah. and um, robotics and everything, and that's, that's kind of missing. Do you think there's a, a kind of special need for kids well, to learn the classic computers?
4: She, she, well, now you've asked that. I'll, I'll tell you my question. My, my angle is i say these days where there's a generation of sort of end-users of kids and people say, oh, look how, look how clever this kid is using a, a smartphone or a tablet. And I'll think to myself, well, to be honest, that's because it's supposed to be an intuitive and simple experience. It's just an end-user thing. The kids are not sort of thinking how we thought when we were starting with BBCs or even the 16-bit computers, you know, the 8-bit computers, stuff like that. So I think with the introduction of things like the BBC micro-bit, we're seeing things come full circle where people are starting to notice, and especially Gary's vision, that's why I knew it was special with the code, show. it's really bringing things back round. In the same way, you know how the bedroom coder things sort of coming back round with the old-school developers of the 80s now developing mobile games. Do you see where I'm coming from? It's, mm. There's got to be a need for more creative uh, generation of people coming out with, with coders and software development and stuff like that, because otherwise... The, the history of what we started with, the UK, like Gary's angle, with the history of the bedroom is that's essentially going to be lost, isn't
1: it? Well, this might be one for you, Gary, you know, when you're doing the show. Um, what are kind of modern kids' reactions to, like, the BBC Micro and the Commodore 64? What do they think of these machines, and are there any that they tend to be drawn to more, any that they kind of really go for?
3: Um, initially, it's the case of, what's that? Um, and then we explain <laughs> the process of, what's a cassette tape? So we, we show them how, what a cassette tape is. And then we'll, you know, we'll wait five, ten minutes for the program to load, and they'll say, is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? But once it's actually loaded, then they'll say, is this all it is? And, you know, Where's the graphics? And then you're, you'll explore, and you're, you'll tell them about you know, how graphics are actually created and how the, the technology is limited. So then they'll, they'll start playing with it, and all of a sudden, they forget about the graphics, and they look at the playability. Um, so the graphics are, are, are actually secondary. In terms of favorites, ZX Spectrum's always a classic, um, Strangely enough, the Amstrad, they seem to like the concept of the Amstrad 464 uh, monitor and keyboard, everything built into one. I also have an Apple Pippin just to actually give them some form of, you know, not all technology works. <laughs> all, the, all the British, all the British you know, iconic hardware you tend to go for, and, you know, your BBC is your mainstay. That's what a lot of these children um, are missing out on, really. And, and obviously with, with the microbit, bit, it just seems to be the opportunity for the coach on is there now it's you know we can tell the story we can give them the the past 35 years um with all the hardware work but they've got hands-on access to everything they can experience it from themselves and they can take it away and, and build on that really and, that, and that's the main essence of the show just to celebrate our you know our unique quirky industry that we created
2: it, you, you make a good point there that you have to kind of show kids cassettes. I, I never really <laughs> thought that kids would uh, need explaining those things, but I can imagine a kid going home to his parents and saying, "You know, oh, I've, <laughs> I've got a floppy disk, that I saw it at school today." Yeah. A
1: three D printed save icon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You, you, know, you, you know something, guys? Yeah, yeah. You know
4: something? It was just when when niece comes over and I've, I've got a few Atari STs running, and I sometimes put a game on it for like Arknight Two or something like that. And I said to me brother, "How does because she's only." six years old, how does she perceive this 30-year-old computer that I'm showing it? Does it look like perhaps how we would say gramophones when we were that age or something. Do <laughs> you yeah, exactly. see where I'm coming from? There's just been such a transitional shift in technology over the years.
1: Well, guys, it's amazing that, you know, you're teaching kids about the history of our industry and also, you know, inspiring a new generation of coders as well. So mm. keep up the amazing work. And if people do want to see you then, do you do much online or are you touring and anywhere outside of schools people can see the show?
3: Well, at the moment, we're, um, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Um, if they want to get in touch, they can email us at hello at the Um Telephone will be live over the next couple of days. We are receiving lots of email interest from schools up and down the country. I think I'm potentially heading up to Dundee you know, just before Christmas. My, the ultimate mission is every school, every child, because mm-hmm. you know our story, our history needs to be told and it needs to be preserved and celebrated because at the moment it isn't being celebrated.
1: Excellent. Well, Mark and Gary, really appreciate you coming on. We'll put all that information in our show notes this week.
2: Thanks very much, guys. It's a pleasure. You know, I found that a fascinating conversation because we all shared that experience at our schools. You know, we all had the BBCs and this, but our international listeners, they must have had different machines. I, yeah. really, I hear in America, they had Apple Twos. you know, uh, God knows what they had everywhere else. So we'd love to hear your stories of kind of your school experiences and gaming and kind of early computing.
1: Yes, you can drop us an email, show at the retrohour.com or on Twitter at retrohouruk. Because you're right, I mean, now it's kind of. We live in like a global market now, where in, in a way it's less interesting because you get the same machines, same consoles all around the world, anywhere you go. Yeah. Um, but back then, every, every country kind of had its own little homegrown industry, didn't they? So yeah, it's all its own little weird computer, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Always remember at school. I mean, this kind of leads, you know. A new story that we've seen, actually. And obviously, the Raspberry Pi is kind of bringing back that kind of hobbyist market. And in, in many ways, running on the ARM processor, that is the spiritual successor to the old Acorn machines. Yeah. And did you ever mess around making, like, you know robotics and robot arms and all that kind of stuff at school. back Yeah, in
2: yeah, I remember the acorns were massively powerful. We had one of those, you know, like a crane game Yeah, where you can lift stuff and we had this arm that you program the coordinates into and you'd have to do it in three dimensions and you'd have to say, right, hit there. And we'd always get it wrong and it'd be hilarious trying to pick up a cup or something like that. It'd take about half an hour to program <laughs> it. Yeah. We
1: would used to make the robot arm flip the bird. <laughs> a bit that, hard with four fingers. Yeah, but yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> so, but there is now, um, this is something I've actually always wanted My own computer-controlled robot.
2: Oh, yeah, there's this uh, fantastic thing that I found that you could love, Dan. It's the uh, Robot Core 1.2, and it's for the Arduino and Raspberry Pi. This is on Kickstarter. Right. And this is an absolute amazing little machine. If you look at it, it's got some fantastic little features. It's got servo motor controls. So, basically, you can attach the servo motors straight to it and then control them out like the GPIO ports of your Raspberry Pi It's also got a prototyping area and, uh, you know, you could just add anything on there but ultimately it's got the uh, emergency power-off switch for the motors in case everything goes wrong. <laughs>
1: when your robot tries to kill
2: you. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it
1: becomes sentient. Yeah. This is awesome, though. This has actually been pledged on Kickstarter. They've actually got the the thirteenth Well, the one 13,000, they've got 13,300. 148 people back in this. And I, lo- I love the logo they've got as well. Got a little robot. Looks a bit like a Wally or Short Circuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. And again, I've just always found robotics fascinating. And... Being able This is like the ultimate
2: hobbyist thing, isn't it? Being able to build your own kind of robot that can do whatever you want. Totally. And I think this is going to be great for kids because you can literally attach this device onto it and you can just attach the motor straight to it. And, you know, before you'd have to kind of build an interface and it, it would seem a lot more complicated, but now it's just get up and go.
1: Well, you know, there's, there's videos and pictures here. They've added stuff like a camera onto it and wheels. There's even like one of the pictures looks a bit like the Mars Rover. Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: you know... this a plant watering system. Someone's developed with it. You
1: know what I really want in the future? You know when I'm an old man with like crazy white hair? You know about Doc Brown on Back to the Future 2? The start when it it feeds a dog and everything. That's what I want to build. This is the starting point. This is where it That is it. That is (laughs) is the beginning. So if you want to find out more, we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, don't forget, coming up next weekend, 25th of November, we're going to be having a pre-Christmas party. Will you be wearing a Christmas jumper?
2: Oh, God, I think I'll have to, but last one you got me was very hot. <laughs> I remember that last time. So. You're a bit
1: toasty, aren't they? Yeah. I've got my Sonic the Hedgehog one, actually. I might wear that. I've only wore it once. And maybe a Christmas string vest or something. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of nip. Yeah. No, too far, Ravi, too far. <laughs> so I'm going to be there next Saturday. David Pleasance is going to be there, the former managing director of Commodore UK. Uh, talking about his new book, Commodore The Inside Story. Given, you know, If you love Commodore 64, the Amiga, you're going to love this day. You know, Get to listen to David for an hour or so. Bar's going to be open the night. You've been there before. There's loads of computers and consoles
2: you can just play on. This place is crazy. You know, if if you kind of want to ignore us all, you could just run off and go into the uh, computer library and just sit there reading infinite magazines about old machines. They've got oh, virtual reality machines there. They've got um, free-to-play arcades. Yeah, it's just a fantastic place. And, you know... You kind of you don't even have to be involved with the event if you just want to come to the museum for a tenner. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, yeah. exactly. You know, have a little pre-Christmas party. I'm sure there'll be mince pies on the go. And we had a few people actually tweeting us going, "Is it family friendly? Can I bring the kids along? while well, oh, I find totally. it interesting?"
2: Yeah, totally.
1: I mean, like you said, it's on all day and all night. I mean, you know, family friendly in the day and probably debauchery on the evening. So uh, <laughs> you know, good balance there, I think. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so if you want to get your ticket booked, uh, check out our website. We'll put that on the front page and uh, the calendar section. The booking link will be in there as well. Do remember, strictly pre-book only to get your tickets sorted. And hopefully we'll see you there next Saturday. Right then, let's get this week's special guest on, talking about making new games for classic platforms. Our friends from Mega Cat Studios are joining us next on the Retro Hour podcast. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to The Retro Hour podcast, and let's welcome on our very special guest this week. Now, this week's going to be really interesting. We're talking about, you know, making new games for classic systems with James Deegan from Mad Cat Studios. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, before we get into what you're doing these days, um, this is something we always like to ask to get a bit of background on you. Kind of going all the way back to the start, where did you begin with computers and gaming then? What was kind of your earliest memories?
5: Well, so definitely as a gamer, my first like clear memory is uh, I was like less than five. I remember coming downstairs, and my mom was like yelling for the guy from Sears who was like uh, trying his best to install like a Sega Genesis uh, in like the giant nest of cords. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up with Genesis first, and I got a Nintendo a couple of years later as a hand-me-down, as it was uh, quickly replaced by the Super Nintendo for my extended family. Um. So they actually came and installed a game system in your house? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, like, uh, so Sears Roebuck at one point was like really the home appliance, home electronics, kind of, uh, you know, set the premium standard for what customer service would look like. So that was an era where they had warranties you could get by default, that uh, you have these grandfathered warranties, like for the lifetime of the device. Oh, wow. So if they can't service it, you know, uh, they'll replace it. So uh, My mom still has some items under these like grandfathered warranties that they no longer provide. But through the 70s and 80s, they still absolutely provided them. And the goal of Sears at the time was to kind of like every house, you know, every appliance, every electronic device comes from Sears.
1: So on the Genesis then, what kind of games do you cherish the most and which ones have got the best memories for you?
5: Yeah, so I I had to pack in with Sonic 1. So I have lots of memories playing that. But if I like Bullet Point, my fondest... Genesis memories from that entire, like, life cycle of gaming. So I got Sonic 1 as a pack-in. The next memory was, you know, having the Sega Genesis iteration of Mortal Kombat with the Blood Code and it being, like, a pretty big deal when I was in, like, first grade. Right after that, right before, we had a pretty bad blizzard in my area. I remember saving up, you know, for more than a year and then purchasing a couple games again at Sears. And I got um Gem and Earl, Panic and Funkatron gunstar heroes vector man like all in one fell swoop and eternal champions and i remember bringing them back home and uh spending the next like two weeks of like blizzard just oh, wow. like cranking on those games <laughs> but that was amazing yeah it was great did <laughs> i you... can still taste like the cool range doritos <laughs> <laughs> did
2: you uh, ever kind of get into the mega cd or any of those later sega things 32x
5: yeah i'd say like at that at that age i wasn't in like a purchasing like role right you know <laughs> I remember kind of being like the, the child translator for my parents of like uh well i want this game next and here's why and I have like ripped out game pro you know sega visions you know pieces but then uh in fact i remember like the, the first bet i won against my mom was she was arguing that sonic and knuckles didn't actually allow you to plug a cartridge into it she's like it's just marketing do you know what marketing is i'm like yes i do but uh you know, but that whole era, though, it was one of those things where you put on your list, save up your allowance, and maybe at the end of one year, you can buy one game. <laughs> so I didn't get any of these uh, cool console upgrades until, like, early teens. But that first moment you uh, prove your,
1: mo- your mother wrong, that's always a moment that sticks in your mind, isn't it? <laughs> well,
5: yeah, I mean, you know what, uh, But be- between, like, the first time that <laughs> I felt like I had an edge of my mom, and also I, like, love playing as Knuckles, it was such a sweet, like, combo. I still remember that crazy commercial with, like, the elves... In the Sonic and Knuckle cartridges. So, uh, how did you come from kind of
2: playing these games to wanting to kind of make them or find out how they?
5: So, we had a like an end of life IT assets company uh, in Pittsburgh. So, whenever companies upgrade their IT assets, they need three things: data destruction, uh, resale, and then refurbishment and repair services. So, we were doing that, and I have a background in, in IT. So between some freelancers, some local hires, and myself, we made some tools for like managing it. And I met a few people, local tech places that <clears throat> all had experience with microcontrollers and lots of uh, low-level things that lends itself really well to all the architecture for these retro games. So you know, eventually we f- figured it would be worthwhile to test it out, make one game. I think that's how a lot of people get into like the homebrew side. You know, they make make one thing as a project, not calling it a proof of concept, just kind of doing it because they they want to do it. And anyone that ever wants to run a business doing this should strongly consider (laughs) making sure they have other facets of income because, you know, the market's 100 times smaller. The work is 10 times larger to make one of these games commercial quality. But if you love uh, the retro platforms, it's absolutely worth it.
2: Well, why did you specifically choose to develop for retro consoles as well?
5: So, the retro console thing is definitely just like a, (laughs) without using like crazier verbiage, it's almost like fetish level desire to work on platforms that we grew up with as kids. So, I know like Andy uh, jokes about this all the time, but you know, when he was growing up, I feel like ten-year-old Andy would look up to like thirty-year-old Andy so much because he's making games that play on the Nintendo. And uh, you know, there's there's no doubt that there's a huge like retro renaissance, like resurgence that's taking place. Where you know, it's not the same as having a game that was released and people have memories of it for the last thirty years. But NES and SNES classics both sold out, high scarcity. <laughs> Pixel art is a timeless medium. And if you look at the top, maybe you know, twenty indie games. Pixel art's getting more and more presence. You know, I saw one person had called it the uh, like high pixel era, one of the the, the owlboy guys. And I think it's great, you know, to see <clears throat> all these fundamental components of retro gaming still having play in the, the mainstream market, but you know, going the extra mile to make sure they run on original hardware and they have a great new in experience. That's something that you know, we, we wanted to make sure we were at least trying. It's May not be a sustainable business model doing it as much as we are, but it's definitely a whole heck of a lot of fun. Well, have
1: you always been into these retro systems then, or did you have a break from it and kind of buy them all again? How did it work?
5: So I had this like really dirty era. I'm ashamed to admit where I just played PC games for like five years. I think we've all done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but outside of that, like uh, you know, I grew up with my Sega Genesis. Then I got a Nintendo hand me down, and right around like the next generation of consoles, PS1 and 64. I got a Super Nintendo and that, by that point, you know, I, I don't think I ever found another era of gaming that I was just like wholly invested into. Mm-hmm. I played games, of course, the entire time. And so that started my first business in college Right around GameCube era. I like barely played anything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, all, all the dark PC days happened around that time. I was still finding retro games really cheap. And I like unintentionally found that, that I'm actually a, a collector. That's there's this giant community of us out there. So, you know, two or three weeks into it, I found some message boards, met some people that live pretty close to me. I met one of my uh, lifelong friends now, Maddie on Nintendo age, uh, met up. And I remember he showed up for our first like trade for some games he tried like wheeling and dealing with me on this like Chrono Trigger Perler. I'm like, listen, man, I like Chrono Trigger. I'm not trading you a game for a Perler, right? And then uh, next thing you know, I had maybe a dozen friends that were local collectors and started getting into trading and tracking and, you know, fast forward a couple more years and I completed a couple sets and decided that now I can sit back and play almost the rest of my life and not need any more cartridges.
2: Uh, And I guess one thing developing for the older systems would be that you don't have to pay any license fees.
5: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, (laughs) that that would save you a lot. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's a welcome problem if you have a game that has traction on current generation platforms. There are some unique barriers with selling games that are, you know, playing on old hardware, even with all the aftermarket alternatives that are super affordable. Like the wholesale cost on a Retron 1 is less than $10. And it's gotten to the point where we've sent out Retron 1s with copies of the game for people to review because if if you email 100 people, even people that have streamed retro in the past, they all want to stream from the ROMs. And it's just, uh, we can't spend you know $10,000 of labor on a game and then send the ROM out before we even break even. You know, So it's a definitely a unique challenge for sure, but something we're, we're happy to rise up with and it's always going to be a piece of who we are. But there's no question that PC gaming is a big part of what we're doing as well. So the same fundamentals of what we love about retro games we're putting into our pc games and our first larger scale pc games are going to be coming out one on kickstarter the next week it's Logjammers. made a pc version of it and then bite the bullet probably end of quarter one for 2018
1: well ravi made an interesting point about you know the developing on old systems without needing licenses i mean do you, do you have to do any workarounds like with the hardware because they're unlicensed or is there any tricks that you need to do like any old like
5: copyright still built into them Weird-shaped cartridges yeah. or anything like <laughs> that. Well, well, okay, so I know we can have um, Sega branding on the back of the shelves, things like that are low-level expected, but when the, the hardware patents expired, that was like the same era of all these aftermarket companies making these new consoles. Um, that's where you saw like the first Retro Ones and Duo Portables and everything else pop up. Um, do you
2: use any of the old kind of development systems, like the original... Mega Drive development system
5: uh, when creating the games, or do you use modern systems? So we, we program everything for sure in like normal day PCs, but we're using you know all the compilers and all the dev tools are the same. Everyone else is going to have access to. I wish we had access to original development tool hardware, but it's not something you can easily pop on Amazon and purchase these days.
1: What about doing the artwork then? How do you make all that you know amazing pixel art that
5: you you guys have in your games? Yeah, so we have a, a pretty awesome team that kind of front line runs that stuff. So Andy was the first person we hired. And, and originally, Andy was just helping with like eBay sales for computers <laughs> back before we did the MIGCAD thing. And I found out that like as a hobby, even though he, his background was in the film industry and doing tech stuff, you know, he'd been doing pixel art as a hobby for 15 years. So we got to, got to talking and you know, now, Andy's our like lead designer, and other awesome team leads for sure are Frank and Harry. They're killer, so they spend all day every day making this their full-time job. And we probably have a 20 or so odd like freelancers that mostly have approached us over time. Say, hey, saw what you guys did. Would love to make a game that gets a physical release on a cartridge. You know, here's my portfolio. It's not super simple to plug in and start making uh, all these like puzzle graphics that fit into the technical specifications required, but we've gotten pretty good at onboarding people and getting them used to it pretty quick. Well,
2: there's quite a few of these like little companies now
5: developing for Mega Drive and NES and stuff. Is there any yep.
2: rivalry or is it all kind of fun and games?
5: No, it's definitely community-based stuff. I think that if anyone ever looks their left and wonders if the other small companies eating their lunch, they're thinking about it the wrong way. Like, I wish I could go to Best Buy and pick up three new Sega games and they'd get released, you know?
1: You know, you're making these titles for, like, classic systems like the NES and the Genesis, I mean, do you kind of have a goal to push these consoles to their absolute limit and make, maybe make them do things that people didn't think they could do?
5: We try to make sure that everything we start and end with, we work to, like, a later life cycle release title, something that you would have found the last two or three years uh, on the Sega Genesis or the NES kind of creating these carts and getting
2: these boards made um must be an absolutely huge effort um are there companies still creating these (laughs) (laughs) work with or are you doing it all by hand i've always wondered that
5: yeah yeah it's pretty wild so we're part of a a group like shell mold for the reaction injection mold for the plastics so uh, a couple of us pitched in and purchased our own shell mold that way there's no nintendo stamp on the back you know and we can you know, freely purchase them and have some kind of control over our supply chain inbound. For the boards specifically, we had someone make a uh, the first Sega Genesis one for us, <clears throat> and then we get our other PCBs from Retro Stage, and they specialize in, you know, making all these like really new, new, high quality beveled edge, all the all the different mappers we'd ever want to do dev on for the NES and SNES.
2: Because I I saw for the release of. um i think it was coffee crisis it was the uh, mega drive release they had just an absolutely beautiful it looked like the original mega drive kind of uh cases that you would get the cartridge in and it had the nice printed manual as well and everything like that
5: yeah we have we definitely put a lot of attention to detail on our 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 items so you can see some of it represented in the photos but you had to hold them in person, like the the cases. They had the Megcat logo stamped behind where the cartridge sits in. They're the same size, ham tags, thickness. The cover is the same quality standard. You know our labels. We use a, a type of label. It's called BPP. So it's the same label type you would see on like a commercial ketchup bottle. It's waterproof, smear proof, lift proof, bubble proof. You know because vinyl and paper labels are still going to have either small run imperfections that you get when you have things done by hand or, or by, um, you know, I'd say non-production quality machinery, or, or they're going to be prone to all the, the things you see in homebrew games with ill-fitted labels, labels of bubble, labels of peel, labels of lift. So all the stuff we have, we tried to make sure we were totally battle-testing it to make sure that when people purchase it, they have something that will, you know, stay the test time a little bit, look like a collectible, you know, not feel fragile when they're handling it, all that kind of good stuff.
1: Well, do you um, ever have any contact with, like, Nintendo or Sega or anyone there, and, and do you kind of know how they feel about, you know, these kind of projects?
5: Yeah, so we are official Nintendo developers, and the, the first time we went through the, the process, it was, like, the, the most friendly, like, uh, lawyer letter ever. They're like, hey, welcome to Nintendo's family. You're now an official Nintendo dev, congrats, also. Here's the 72 things you have to change right away, <laughs> and, and it's like uh, just I guess normal things you'd expect. But if you have similar logo placement, similar logo styling on a game, <clears throat> you know, Nintendo does a pretty granular like run through that if they're going to put you on their platform, they don't want people to misinterpret a Nintendo seal of quality uh, with a Nintendo official developer. So we've been working towards, you know, getting some exclusions to have to become like a officially released Nintendo product as well. Uh, We got our ISO 9001 certification earlier this year. It gives us quality assurance certification that when things are manufactured or leave the building, that they're meeting a certain quality standard. And that's one of the baseline barriers that prevents companies from doing that. So we're trying to cover those bases to eventually become an officially released Nintendo product. But uh, Nintendo's pretty hands-on with what they like and don't like. And I kind of turn the other way. With the uh, physical cartridge thing, since, you know, if anything else, uh, the iconic shape and size, you know, the cartridge itself is different, the shape is different. Um, it plays on the original hardware, which probably just keeps that much more of what Nintendo's known for alive and in conversation. Well, I know Nintendo obviously recently brought out like the,
1: the NES Mini and the SNES Mini. I yeah. mean, are they kind of looking at the retro market again, actually paying attention to like your NES releases? And does that still apply even to like the classic stuff?
4: Yeah,
1: I, I wish I could ask you that.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's really uh, no doubt in my mind that they're aware of the value of their IPs on the retro platforms, but I'm completely certain that they're not going to be releasing any like actual NES cartridges or SNES cartridges ever again. Would you develop for stuff like the Dreamcast or kind of later retro release systems? Yeah, so I, I love the Dreamcast. I'm a big uh, like Sega fanboy, like born and raised. We have lots of uh, like endless office banter about that, actually. <laughs> oh, nice. I'm, I'm outnumbered like 15 to 1 this is know? like it- there's like nine games coming out a year on that there's a big yeah game it's, it's the dreamcast. crazy i love the dreamcast homebrew market too i think it's awesome we will definitely uh be releasing games on other platforms right now we're trying to just dig deep into the vertical slice where we're competent at and that's nes snes genesis stuff and then you know the pc games definitely take a lot more time and a bigger budget to produce and something that's unique to our brand is what we're calling it the upmakes. So the upmake will be the same like fundamental gameplay components, same genre, same character, same storyline, but bringing it to life on a newer generation platform. So if you want to see an example of our upmake, uh, you can look at the trailer we have on our YouTube channel of Logjammers for the PC and compare it to Logjammers for the NES. Well, before we kinda of get onto the games, because
2: you've got some fantastic titles we want to talk about, I um looked at a, a demo kind of cart that you did, a chiptune demo cart called Keeping yeah. it, <laughs> Creeping It Real. And uh this is a really cool idea. I d I couldn't think that you could have a little kind of
5: chip tune cart. Yeah, there's a pretty cool active like chiptune community. Uh when we put the album on an NES cartridge, it plays in an NES console, <clears throat> instead of it just being a chiptune only. Uh, we have some very awesome licensed dancing pumpkin Man dance moves, which I think that alone is worth the purchase because it's like having a hands-on pumpkin trainer showing you some of the sick, sick moves that he's learned to like, you know, bring to life. And then there's a pachinko game that, you know, while you're listening to some cool Halloween tunes, grab some candy, do some digital trick or treating. Well, on this show, we first
1: covered you guys when you'd uh, just finished the Kickstarter for um, Coffee Crisis um, on the Genesis, so. For people that might not be aware of that game, tell us a bit about that game and who came up with that. Um, you know, it's quite
5: an original idea, actually, isn't it? Yeah. So, Copy Crisis is a beat up for the Sega Genesis Mega Drive. Uh, you play as Nick or Ashley, and you're saving the world from the smergling alien race. They've come down upon us to steal Wi-Fi, metal music, <clears throat> and the best coffee. I just love the idea that they're stealing <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, I mean, that's like one of the most heartfelt, like, talk about relating to the individual. If someone's stealing my Wi-Fi, I'm, I'm going to rise up. The the thing that everybody goes to a coffee shop for. is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So w- what
2: are the difficulties developing between a kind of a, a Mega Drive and a SNES as well, or a, a NAS even?
5: Yeah, you know, they all have their own unique challenges. Uh, I'd say, like, What makes the NES more attractive to everybody is two things. It's art budget, so it's so much cheaper to make a game that's full-featured for the NES on the NES because the art is more simplified. It's not to say that the art can't be incredible on the console when working to its capacity, but if you compare the same budget for the same quality standard on the NES to the SNES, there is a, a huge margin to close jumping to the SNES. And the other thing is there's a very active NES dev homebrew community so the uh, the SNES tools are not very well developed. They're pretty buggy. They're definitely like less people doing SNES games for many other reasons. But the uh, not to mention the N- the NES is just simply like more iconic. It's a lot of times I think it gets its uh its clout because it's kind of piece in history. Yeah, because in the UK, you know, uh,
2: we didn't actually have that many NESs, so SNES was uh, a lot kind of bigger here but um,
5: yeah, in America, I it's the opposite. Uh, it? you know, I, I, don't, I don't actually like, factually know what any kind of metrics looks like, but I would say that the most common question we get when people come out to us at a convention or via email is like, what we're doing for SNES like, all the time, endlessly. And the answer is we have three SNES games that will be coming out in 2018.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of games that you've just released, I mean, uh, Creepy Brawlers, I was watching that on your YouTube channel before. That game looks really cool. T- tell us a bit about that game then.
5: Yeah, creepy brawlers took everything that we'd like about Punch Out, uh, and then added some features that you'd find maybe in 2017: counter attacks, enemy evolutions, an achievement system. Uh, I think, from a developer standpoint, something that gives us a little bit of technical street cred is to make sprites that size. Is everything is background tiles constantly swapping, and you know these are all completely, completely new games, right? We put tons and tons of time and effort into that. Each one of these games takes several people. Six months plus to like make start to finish test bug test, all that kind of good stuff. But uh, creepy Brawlers is great, and it's also you know I think a little bit faster, a little more like immersive if you want to say that on the Nintendo. You know the the hits are fast. You know everything runs at sixty FPS. So for, I think for a fighting game or a boxing game, that type of game feel like really matters and makes an impact.
1: And you could like, punch aliens in the face and creepy cr- clowns. Franken- and stuff.
5: <laughs> you know, I, I love the art in that game. So Frank did almost 100% of the art in that game. And uh, Frank is incredible at character designs and animation. And, you know, working in the crazy limitations of NES background spec at this point, I think those characters look so great. And they, they, they move awesome. Like, it's one of my favorite games that we've certainly ever released. But my favorite games is to watch people play at conventions because it's like the most rage-quitty convention game ever. Like, if you don't have any type of background in retro gaming, it's almost, like, unapproachable for the casual gamer. Well,
1: that's what I love about, you know, the classic games sitting down on the couch with two, you know, controllers. Not playing yeah. it online yet, you can turn around and punch your friend in the arm then when he, when he oh, beats it's you. that's the best, yeah, for
5: sure. And There's something, like, really great about some of the, the enemy's taunts, or you can almost, like, see someone staring at the CRT and just, like, cursing to themselves.
2: <laughs> Well, your games kind of seem like fantastic mashups. So I was looking at um, Justice Jewel as well, and that seems to be like Joust mixed with Bill and Ted or something. (laughs) uh,
5: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess one of the challenges with with like NES specifically is that, well, A, we're always going to have the same technical limitations. Horizontal scan line limit, which, you know, sprite size, how many things can be in motion at one time, loaded onto the screen, tile limits... So there's always going to be some similarities for any homebrew NES game, regardless of the genre shifts. But, you know, what I like the most about uh, Justice Duel? it uses the NES four score, which, you know, less than one percent of the games released for the NES library had four player local multiplayer, and it does it with no slowdown. So you, you can generally sit down with four people and just it's kind of like Towerfall meets Joust. So you move like Joust, but there's missiles, traps bombs achievement system and the four player component of it definitely brings it to life
2: and i think with a uh, ready player one coming out uh, joust is going to be in the mainstream public eye so have you kind of timed this uh, <laughs> deliberately yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah you know what some of the games that we have kind of in backlog uh, you know we we started on them i guess imagine if you know you're you're talking to a room of uh friends acquaintances that all have different capabilities and you say, "All right, guys, let's brainstorm about you know what our first three games will be, or what our first two will be," and everyone has an idea that they suggest that they're like inexplicably like married to, and then they have ideas that are like communal group, like agreed upon genres, ideas, whatever else. Well, over time, since we give everyone creative autonomy and input, some of these games are absolutely—I don't want to call them personal projects—but like one specific team member leads the way and says, like. I'm making a game like this. I'd love to have you guys involved. (laughs) You know, and uh, they kind of forced their way forward on it. So we have a backlog of maybe six or seven games that are going through just the long detail that they need to be commercial quality. But up front, like over next year, we'll probably be releasing like eight or 10 games just because we have so many started And then after that, it'll be much more conservative since we're not going to have everyone going completely nuts, tying up projects that we've been massaging.
1: One project that you guys have got that, you know, has been getting a lot of attention, I've noticed, is um, Little Medusa that actually looks like it could have been like an original JRPG game from back in the day. Um, Did you work hard to get that look like really accurate? And are there any like elements of gameplay that make that game like unique?
5: Yeah, I, I think that game is just totally unique. I, the only thing that has some similar mechanics to it is Kickle Cubicle. It, it was released on the Famicom. But uh, outside of that, like Little Medusa and Creepy Brawlers are like going neck and neck for which game cost us the absolute most amount of time for, for dev and art. And in this last final stretch for Little Medusa, we're just squeezing every little piece of detail we can right now. Some voice samples, which I don't know how, how many NES games you can remember had voice sampling in them, not so many, you know, uh, lots of, you know, little game field details, sparkles, you know, animated water in the backgrounds stuff that sounds so simple and you take for granted with modern day tech stacks, but in these NES stacks, it's like a a 40 hour week for one person full time as their primary job, just to make the water animated in one level. So it definitely (laughs) becomes pretty labor intensive, but at this point, if we're gonna go down, we're going go down gunning really hard and trying to make stuff that we're proud of that you can see. Which with each successive release, you know, the, the quality standard we're reaching towards. But Little Medusa is packed full of stuff like that, and it's it's cool because it has this uh, like low accessibility. Where I've had you know seven year olds come up to us at some of the video game conventions we staff and sit down with a controller and out of the gate figure out the mechanics, uh, play the game for forty five minutes, glued to it making minimal progress, but still understanding it and having fun doing it. So it's, we've been calling it a puzzle platformer. And if you look at some of the gameplay footage that we've released on our YouTube channel, you can see some of the old updates. And we have a new capture that will be going up this week that shows all the leaps and bounds of that last 15% of a project being squeezed on.
1: You know, you mentioned something really interesting there, I imagine. You know, when you see kids sitting down and playing these games, do you kind of see that magic in their eyes that we had when we first sat down and played them as kids?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I probably see it more in the parents' eyes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but uh, there's no question that, like, well-done pixel art, a a fun game is just fun no matter what, whether you're playing it on your phone, your Nintendo, your PC. And it does transcend, like, all game types, if you can kind of marry that, like, core fun mechanic part in with, like, cool-looking art, Every, every convention we've been to with Little Medusa, I'd say that becomes like the kid favorite just because <laughs> they can pick up and figure out exactly how to play out of the gate. Usually the parents, the ones that bring them over, are excited. Right, the kids don't point at the Nintendo excited. They're like, what is that big gray thing? And then someone comes over with the same old, like, when I was a kid, I had this one. You, know, you want to try it out? Then they go through the shock that we're making new games for it still. Then they ask us how we're possibly in business. And then they give their kids the controller and they try it out too.
1: And about the kids reach for the CRT and try and use it as a touchscreen, do they?
2: Right?
5: Yeah, it happens all the time. It's crazy. <laughs> I saw a little kid at work just run up
2: and slam a TV the other day. I was like, no. Yeah,
5: That's actually like, such a wonderful idea. I, I just had a realization that this entire time I've missed out not having like, a GoPro attached to these TVs.
2: Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you were saying you were doing these kind of remakes as well. Uh, Upmakes and uh, Logjammers is one and that looks like a fantastic game it looks like to me it looks like California Games mixed with Earthworm Jim in the kind of style of it
5: yeah it definitely has like an Earthworm Jim Zombies Ate My Neighbors like style influence Um, so of course it's based the core gameplay off of Windjammers one of my all time favorite games for the Neo Geo and I love couch co-op stuff just like you were talking about kind of like elbowing your friend I enjoy that more than any online gameplay stuff that I've had. And as time's gone by and we get busier and busier with our normal lives, you know, I like games that I can pick up, play, put down and come back to in two months. <clears throat> so logjammer checks all those boxes and it also has just a ton of like humor packed in some great like wow moments. And it's the first time we pushed tons of other um, kind of new gen tech stacks into it. It takes full command over, like, the Razer Chroma SDK. So we have the Razer Chroma headphones, mousepad, mouse, keyboard. We have tons of really cool particle effects programs specifically for the game. We have Twitch integration with some really neat stuff that we're going to be announcing with the Kickstarter in the next week. It's one of the reasons we pushed the actual development and release of Logjammers back. We originally had intended on putting up the Kickstarter in August, but with the daunting release of AAA titles coming out and the realization that this game works and is made around local and online multiplayer we definitely have to utilize twitch which is you know its own like crazy innovative community by itself well i guess that's one of the bonuses of actually
2: upscaling this game and uh you know you get the multiplayer aspects you get all the aspects that you wouldn't get with the older consoles
5: yeah it's you know definitely satisfying our, our a chance to like reach a little bit and see what we can do with some of the new, uh, not less restrictions, right? Like uh, having some of the crazy, like shaders, unity effects, particle effects that bring a game to life, haptic feedback in your controller. You know, it is so much fun to push those things to its limits. And I think we did a good job with Logjammer specifically, making sure we're still checking the boxes of like what the core ethos is of those games that we want to translate and then showing kind of what each platform can do. Well it's it's kind of a crazy concept as well, battling on
2: logs. I wonder if any of you guys have been to Canada recently or kind of seen any of the
5: log rolling. Yeah, there's actually a like a very vibrant like community of both axe throwing for competitions and like log running. So, you know I'll have to on, check that on YouTube. Yeah, unintentionally. Yeah. We're like, uh oh, it'd be cool if we did a game like this. I'm like, oh man, well, you know, Windjammers has been on my, like, love letter list of video games for a decade. Well, I think we were at MAGFest a couple years ago when we first kind of started spitballing the idea on the on the car ride back. And then that was one of the first NES games we ever released. And it was, you know, despite being really simple, uh, we had a lot of people picking it up at events and just enjoying, like, what Couch Co-op has to offer. And there's no Windjammers arcade sports type of game like that on the Nintendo. So we're actually about to release... We're jokingly calling it uh, retitled like Logjammer's DLC, and it's a, a new version of the NES port that we're going to put up with the Kickstarter. So, completely redone graphics, top to bottom, redone animations. Same core gameplay, same scoring, but just lots of additional beauty features that show our growth as a company and the team with the art side. Yeah, because I saw that there was a a cheerleader mode that looked quite funny. (laughs) Cheerleader mode is definitely my favorite mode. You can't use it for tournaments because it takes too long, but there's something really fulfilling about hearing the cheerleaders scream as they get chopped in half. So, kind of, when you were a kid, did you ever think in uh, 2018 you'd be uh, making NES games? uh... Yeah, I wish I could say I did. didn't have a grand vision of uh, making retro games I just love playing them and collecting them and in some kind of weird self-serving fashion I'm like well what if we just help contribute to this really awesome community out there so we did one we're starting to turn into five now once we close up this first chapter uh, we're hoping that we can look back on it and say you know this can be a component of our identity forever and if it at least breaks even and we continue to find a place getting contract work and bringing other people's ideas to life. Our goal would be to eventually make our explicit focus just our own IP. And I know that the PC games are the fastest, most sure path to get there. So, uh, you know, we're pretty excited to see all this effort come to fruition this month and the next four months here. So tell us about this Kickstarter you've got coming up then. So we've had Logjammers Only beta keys to streamers, friends, and some of the events we've traveled to the last six months. So the two different events that had like game competitions at. So Game we won uh, Best in Show and Best Gameplay. And the other one we entered at GDEX, we got uh, Let's Play Best in Show. So, so far in those events, you know, we've come out with some type of external validation that says, We really liked that game. It was generally just a ton of fun, and you know, here's a really funny-looking trophy for your office. (laughs) And uh, our intention was to keep playtesting it until we had enough external validation that, you know, it's it's going to have some type of commercial viability, and and give us a platform to jump off from making it our first big PC release. So, like any other early-stage video game company. You're building marketing infrastructure, and we have a pretty awesome team of like three or four guys. Well, one's one's a cat that are helping kind of get the word out for that stuff. But uh, there's no question that crowdfunding is the fastest way when you don't have an incredible plan in mind to get your name out there, get some organic kits. It's a weird time of year to put up a Kickstarter, but we can't leave this calendar year without doing it. So we're just going to put it up, and we think that it'll. It'll be close enough to an if-you-build-it-they-will-come type scenario just because of the cool artwork and the attention to detail we have all throughout the game.
1: Well, if people do want to find it, James, and also maybe they've listened to you know, stories of the other games that you've done and they want to buy those, wh- where can they find you?
5: Megacatstudios.com. Yeah, everything's on there. On the main page, the banners at the top are always being updated with whatever our current go-to is. And if you go to the, the online shop and click, click buy or shop, you'll see everything separated by console.
1: Good time of year to get those as well. You know, the, the Christmas stockings need filling in the next couple of months.
5: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that most games that aren't AAA, that kind of cringe this time of year. And we've been doing the opposite because uh, we have, I think is like some of the coolest gamer gifts you can give.
1: Well, James, you and the guys at MegaCat Studios are doing you know, amazing stuff for the retro scene.
5: So uh, really appreciate everything you're doing and just keep up the good work. Thanks for having us on. We really appreciate any type of opportunity like this to Meet some of our current or future fans.
0: Selling a little. Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business.
3: Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about
5: extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.
0: The biggest international festival for the
5: business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. passes from £89. Book yours now at the podcastshowlondon.com.